Retrogram, Revisiting TV Futures from the Past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Retrogram number 7001. Welcome to the 1970s. The week of December 28, 1969. New year, new you, new decade. Well, that's a whole new world. After all, going into 1970, NASA had landed two sets of astronauts on the surface of the moon, so surely anything was possible. But in the waning weeks of 1969, it seemed like a lot of bad things were possible, too. The first draft lottery since World War II was held to conscript new members of the military for the growing conflict in Vietnam. Charles Manson defended himself in court as he faced charges in the murder of Sharon Tate. In Tracy, California, the Altamont Speedway Free Festival, headlined by the Rolling Stones, Jefferson Airplane, and Santana, and intended to be the West Coast's own Woodstock, turned into a crime scene as one woman was stabbed to death, three others died in various accidents, and instead of another festival of peace, love, a few recreational drugs, and rock and roll, it turned into a riot with the Hell's Angels providing... security? Elsewhere... The Texas Longhorns beat the Arkansas Razorbacks by one point on the Hogs' home turf in Fayetteville, with President Nixon in attendance. CBS aired the Rankin-Bass stop-motion holiday special Frosty the Snowman for the very first time. The Boeing 747 flew its first passenger flights, and the very first link between more than one node of the fledgling ARPANET, which would, over the 70s, morph into something more like the Internet, was humming along nicely. Surely this new decade meant anything would be possible, right? I mean, good stuff, like the Razorbacks winning some football games, right? Let's see what the sci-fi and spy-fi of that era had to say about it. You can often tell what a society is worried about by seeing what messages creep into its entertainment. In the last few days of 1969 and the first few days of 1970, had some interesting things to say. Mission Impossible, Season 4, Episode 13, The Amnesiac, aired Sunday, December 28, 1969, on CBS. A dingy, empty pool hall. That's exactly the kind of place you expect to find Jim Phelps. Actually, it's exactly the kind of place Phelps expects to find the tape player. You know, the one with the latest set of instructions for the Impossible Missions Force. He finds it on top of a wooden pool cue rack. Good thing no one else put their hand up there, huh? because then they would be the ones hearing a message about a stolen sphere of the incredibly rare isotope trevanium, and they'd be hearing about how, despite the rarity of trevanium, it's a potent enough isotope that even a small sample could allow any country to inexpensively develop their own nuclear arsenal. And they'd be hearing about the three foreign nationals who set the theft of the trevanium into motion. But fortunately, 
No one's heard this message before Phelps got to it, so it's business as usual, and time for him to set the usual suspects into motion. But they won't be looking for all three of the men who hatched the Trevanium heist. You see, one of them killed one of the others, and then told the guy in charge that the recently deceased lost the Trevanium. So that sphere of Trevanium is about to hit the black market. Anyone want some nukes? Because that's how you get nukes. Of course, sometimes part of keeping an operation undercover is not keeping it undercover at all. Phelps breezes into this vaguely fascist foreign land in a whirlwind of publicity, posing as a doctor who can miraculously undo amnesia, complete with television coverage about his recent lecture tour. Strongman Willie Armitage gets busted moving a filing cabinet. Nope, nope, nope. If you don't have papers showing you're supposed to be moving that, you take it back to the file room right now, mister. Except that it's not a filing cabinet from the filing room. It's a fake filing cabinet containing electronics and espionage expert Barney Collier, who just got a free ride to the room containing all of the actual sensitive files. Good going, Willie. Agent Monique, no last name given because she's a guest star, has gotten herself a gig playing piano at the bar frequented by the powers that be, and she's already caught the eye of Major Johan, one of the three engineers of the Trevanium heist the one who killed his partner and swindled his boss. Nice guy. And hey, small world, into that same bar walks Stefan, a.k.a. the IMF's resident master of disguise, Paris, sketching out a caricature of Miss Ober, the woman who is actually Major Johann's date. She also used to be in love with the man Johann killed, and he too was a sketch artist in his off-duty time. Paris quotes a favorite writer of his and gives Miss Ober her caricature with his compliments. Hey, her late lover used to quote that same writer. Funny, that. In the file room, Barney finds a record of the dead man's fingerprints, duplicates them, and then puts them in another file. After her evening out, Miss Ober talks to Colonel Vorta, the guy in charge of security in this country. That man, Stefan, he had the same voice, mannerisms, and even the same drawing style as her late lover. She's seriously spooked. Vorta blows her concerns off. All that could be the same, but if the gentleman didn't have her lover's face, what does it matter? But just to get her mind back to her next assignment, Vorta says, he'll look into this Stefan. Exit Miss Ober and enter Mr. Poulsen, Vorta's political advisor. He's received word that some Trevanium is hitting the market in Switzerland soon. Say, wasn't Vorta supposed to supply Poulsen and Poulsen's government with some stolen Trevanium in exchange for help with a coup d'etat to put Vorta in power? Seems like there's a problem if that same sphere of Trevanium is about to be sold to a wannabe Asian superpower. Better get it back, or the deal's off. Meanwhile, in what's sure to be a coincidence, Armitage, still dressed as one of the local security force and office staff, is handing out the latest fascist phone book to every office, including Vorta's aide. When Major Johan next shows up in Colonel Vorta's office, Hey, isn't that the girl who was playing piano at the bar? Vorta's asking her about this Stefan, a man she met after he had some sort of accident a couple of years ago. This isn't an interrogation, really, but the possibility that Stefan could be the man who went missing with the Trevanium is of great interest to Colonel Vorta. She tells them that Stefan had been in some sort of fire, and if he's been in any kind of trouble, she doesn't know anything about it. But under a bit of pressure, she does remember one of the doctor's names. Mr. Wizard? No, that wasn't it. A Dr. Wissert. Yeah, that's it, Dr. Wissert. Turns out he's in the new phone books that Willie was just handing out. Vorta orders Major Johan to go find Stefan while he has his secretary place a call to Dr. Wissert. 
Dr. Wissert here. Actually, it's Barney Collier doing the same vaguely Eastern European accent as everyone else in the show, posing as this Dr. Wissert. Stefan? Sure he was here. Horribly burned. We couldn't restore his original appearance, but at least we made sure he wouldn't spend the rest of his life looking like a burn victim. That's all Colonel Vorta needs to hear. He wants Stefan brought to his office now. Stefan, or Paris, is undergoing a somewhat more intensive interrogation in Colonel Vorta's office. He says he's not a former agent of Vorta's government, and he doesn't know anything about any Trevanium. He just wants to go home. But what's this? A business card is found in one of Stefan's pockets. A doctor's name and a date. Tomorrow's date. Guess Stefan has an appointment. Hey, wasn't this the doctor whose face was all over TV in the papers because he's got a treatment for amnesia? Sure thing, it's our boy Phelps playing doctor. Colonel Vorta has him rounded up and brought in, where the colonel gives him an ultimatum. Restore Stefan's memory within 24 hours, or bad things will happen to both doctor and patient. Monique enters her dressing room at the bar, but there will be no tickling the ivories tonight. Major Johann is there. He's found a hole in her story. He pulls a gun. He wants the truth. Time to improvise. She says she has left a letter with a friend who will deliver it to Vorta if anything happens to her. The letter will incriminate Johann. She says she knew Stefan before the accident and knew that he and a partner were trying to steal something worth a million dollars. She wants in on the heist, and Johann can play along or be exposed as a traitor. The Major is now somewhere just this side of a blind panic, and Monique's room is bugged. She keeps playing Johann for whatever information he can give her, up to and including where the Trevanium sphere is stored. But who's listening at the other end of the bug? It's Collier and Armitage, and their team is on the way to pick up the Trevanium. But there's no point in anyone going home empty-handed. They're leaving a little something in its place, too. But it's not what Vorta and company are expecting. Under the care of Dr. Lumen, Stefan is remembering everything from his childhood to a sinister man in the shadows, always stalking him, always nearby, always a threat. Stefan asks to see his girlfriend, and Monique is brought in. She babbles something about her travel plans, but it's a coded message. Now Paris knows where the Trevanium is, and under interrogation, he not only tells Vorta where it is, but tells him that Major Johann tried to kill him. With that information out in the open, Vorta has no further use for Stefan, or Dr. Lumen. He's off to check on the now-revealed prize, and to settle the score with the treacherous Major Johann. Phelps and the rest of the IMF escape with the Trevanium, and one suspects that a whole lot more treachery is about to go down among this country's top brass, and their advisor from outside the country. The End by this point, the power couple of Martin Landau and Barbara Bain had left Mission Impossible, and if anyone was happy about this, you can bet it was one of the new stars of the show, one Leonard Nimoy, fresh off of a recently cancelled series called Star Trek. You might have heard about it. I think there are still some reruns, maybe a spin-off or two still happening. Nimoy was a known quantity and a very respected one at Paramount Television, formerly Desilu Productions, and so he simply slid from one former Desilu series over to another former Desilu series. Star Trek had enjoyed one whole season as a production of Paramount Television, which was basically Desilu with a different name after Lucille Ball sold her studio to Paramount Pictures, but Mission Impossible would be running through the spring of 1973, precisely because it had a more interchangeable cast of characters who could be replaced with other um, specialist. Uh, 
Nimoy was very worried about typecasting coming off of three years as Mr. Spock, so something a bit more dangerous and, dare we say it, emotive was just what he needed. I think it's fair to say that every member of the Star Trek cast had similar concerns. That being said, Nimoy didn't want to become too tied to Mission Impossible either, and stayed with the show for only two seasons. The only cast members to remain with the show for all seven seasons were Greg Morris and Peter Lupus. The showrunner of Mission Impossible at this point in the show's history was successful TV producer Bruce Lansbury, who had inherited the big chair from the series creator Bruce Geller. The Lansbury era of Mission Impossible, if you want to call it that, saw an attempt to phase out international espionage missions for the IMF, replacing them with more domestic missions, usually involving gathering evidence against organized crime operatives. That was seen as a much cheaper alternative to constantly having to construct studio sets and costumes to represent foreign locations and their populations. A mob story could be shot on location in any American city without exotic costumes or casting, less expensively. Or at least that was the theory. The series really didn't get any cheaper in practice. By the way, there's one whole track of music from this episode on Disc 4 of La La Land Records' six-CD collection, Mission Impossible, The Television Scores, which was released in 2015 and is now out of print. Only 1,500 copies were made, so if you missed it, uh, you might have an easier time trying to get Phelps' tape to not self-destruct in five seconds. For whatever it's worth, the piece of music is the one that Monique is playing in the bar that gets Miss Ober thinking about her dead lover. So, if you have any dead lovers, maybe it'll do the same for you. No, no, scratch that. This podcast just self-destructed right then. Uh, Collier pronounces physiognomy as physiognomy. The G is supposed to be silent, at least any time I have ever heard anyone else pronounce that word. Uh, maybe he's kind of leaning into the Eastern European accent thing there. I thought that was a little strange. If you haven't seen Leonard Nimoy outside of Star Trek, you're really cheating yourself out of the full range of his ability as an actor. The scene where his character is acting like he's being regressed to childhood, rocking back and forth, hugging himself, alternating between a sing-song voice and breaking down in childlike terror. It's really something, and it's easily the highlight of the whole episode. It was part of the Mission Impossible playbook to develop the characters on our side as little as possible, and for them to play it cool on assignment. So Nimoy's acting here really stands out. Not only is he the only one on screen who isn't keeping a poker face, but whatever Paris is inventing in the moment, walking the tightrope between keeping it vague and being just specific enough to be believable during the interrogation show that he and Phelps are putting on, it's really strangely affecting. It's kind of funny if you think about how, in going across the lot directly from Star Trek to Mission Impossible, Leonard Nimoy went from being the only actor who couldn't show emotion on one show to being the only actor allowed to show any emotion on the other. And Leonard brought lots of Star Trek pals with him. This is Anthony Zerby's third guest appearance on Mission Impossible out of five total, each time playing a different character. Now, technically, as of December 1969, Anthony had not been in Star Trek yet, but he would be someday playing Admiral Dougherty in the 1998 movie Star Trek Insurrection. To me, he'll always be the evil roboticist Abner Devereaux, the main villain in the classic 1978 TV movie event, Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park. But here he was Colonel Vorta. Playing the part of Major Johan was Steve Ennott, 
an actor who had already made quite an impression in Star Trek, guest starring as the Mad Garth of Izar during the third and final season of the original series. He had worked for Gene Roddenberry before in an episode of The Lieutenant, and went on to appear in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, a two-part episode of The Original Outer Limits, The Fugitive, The Mod Squad, and Mannix. Like Anthony Zerby, this was Mission Impossible guest shot number three for Steve Innott, but it was also the last one. Steve died in May 1972 of a heart attack at the age of 37. There's one more guest star worthy of note here. Julie Gregg had the dubious privilege of being one of several actresses in the fourth season to step into the vacancy left by Barbara Bain after season three. The idea was that rather than hiring a specific actress to stay with the show full-time, the producers would go through a succession of guest stars suited to the needs of each story. And maybe, if one or more of them had a good rapport with cast and crew, their services could be engaged again, though that only happened with one actress in season four, Lee Merriweather. She was the only one to appear twice in that season. Julie Gregg would play an unrelated character in another guest appearance on Mission Impossible in 1970, before joining the Corleone family in 1972's The Godfather. Later TV guest roles awaited in Mannix, Kolchak the Night Stalker, Kojak, The Incredible Hulk, BJ and the Bear, and Falcon Crest. We lost Julie in 2016. The story was by Robert Malcolm Young, with a teleplay by Robert and Ken Pettis. This was Scotsman Robert Malcolm Young's only Mission Impossible script. He also wrote episodes of Then Came Bronson, The Mod Squad, The Immortal, Night Gallery, and Trapper John M.D., but his most significant credit may be as the writer behind 1975's Escape to Witch Mountain, a more recent remake of which also had to credit him. Ken Pettis was a veteran of such shows as Combat, The Green Hornet, and The Wild Wild West, he racked up a total of ten writing credits on Mission Impossible, of which The Amnesiac was only the third. He went on to write for Battlestar Galactica, Fantasy Island, and the original Hawaii Five-O, among others. He died in 1992 at the age of 77. So 1970 is just days away, and we're already worried about small countries who want to be big fish in the global political pond getting access to nuclear weapons? Man, when 2020 is mere days away, I hope that is totally no longer a problem. Land of the Giants, Season 2, Episode 15, Our Man O'Reilly, also aired Sunday, December 28, 1969, but over on ABC. The story so far. In the distant, futuristic 1980s, supersonic air travel has been replaced with even faster suborbital flights, coast-to-coast -coast in mere minutes. One suborbital passenger transport, the Spindrift, is in the middle of one of these flights when magnetic interference causes some kind of space warp. The Spindrift crash lands on an Earth-like world populated with humans, humans who are giants to the passengers and crew of the Spindrift. Even animals and insects are a threat to them now, so they have to stick together simply to stay alive in this land of the giants. Our Man O'Reilly 
A man is being chased, forcing the Spindrift crew to scatter and hide, just in time to watch him trip, fall, and lose consciousness. The men chasing him seem to be a private security officer and a guy in a suit. They lose interest in finding their quarry pretty quickly because, well, it's night. We're in some woods, and they probably just have something better to do. When the man comes to, he sees the little people from the Spindrift, and he's in awe of them, something that Fitzhugh takes full advantage of. You see, this guy sounds like he's from, well, let's call it Giant Ireland, and Fitzhugh reckons that makes him the king of the leprechauns. This giant's name is O'Reilly, and Captain Steve Burton and the rest of the Spindrifters figure out that he'll do whatever they want. Burton tells O'Reilly to shut his eyes and count to a thousand so they can make their escape back to the base camp, also known as the downed and disguised Spindrift. But Fitzhugh has other ideas. He commands O'Reilly to carry him back to base. And that means O'Reilly now knows where the Spindrift is. Captain Burton has a problem with this. Anyone else see a problem with this? As it turns out, some of Fitzhugh's fellow Spindrift passengers are surprisingly okay with this arrangement, especially when Fitzhugh reveals what his next instructions to O'Reilly were. Leave a mug of beer in the woods. Of course, an O'Reilly-sized mug of beer is a veritable vat of beer to Fitzhugh and friends. Mark Wilson, who's been trying to help fix the Spindrift, has an idea. Why doesn't Fitzhugh get O'Reilly to bring some of the parts they need to repair the ship? That might convince Burton that having O'Reilly on their side is more of a help than a hindrance. Fitzhugh swings into action. Mark needs six identical three-foot pistons, which in the giant's world means three-inch darning needles. O'Reilly, with Fitzhugh in his coat pocket, finds a street vendor selling sewing supplies, but the men who were looking for O'Reilly when all this started find him and grab him. They grab him to buy him a drink and apologize. Okay. Fitzhugh has to go into radio silence while all this is happening because he's in O'Reilly's pocket. But as the drinks flow, O'Reilly almost accidentally spills the beans about the, uh, leprechauns. A sharp jab from Fitzhugh shuts him up before he says too much. Well, maybe. O'Reilly returns Fitzhugh and the needles to the woods near the spindrift. But Krenko, the guy who splits his time between chasing O'Reilly and buying drinks for him, is now tailing the frequently drunk Irishman, sticking to him like an insensitive ethnic stereotype. He's watching O'Reilly when he's doing weird things in town like ripping a page out of the phone book in a telephone booth, or digging a shoebox out of the trash can outside a store, and then taking these items to the woods and leaving them there. Now that O'Reilly's gained the trust of the crew of the Spindrift, they're more comfortable making specific requests, such as having O'Reilly smuggle them into a jewelry store after hours so they can find the kind of tiny precision tools they need to repair the Spindrift. Krenko's not far behind, though, and he's figured out that O'Reilly might be doing the bidding of tiny people. He lies in wait to catch O'Reilly and his tiny friends, but Krenko is assuming that they're jewel thieves, and he tries to go in guns blazing. After a brief struggle with O'Reilly, he's snared in a makeshift trap set by Captain Burton and the others, who then get away with O'Reilly's help. But this arrangement, while it has been hugely beneficial to the Spindrift crew, is too dangerous to keep going. It's time to tell O'Reilly the truth about his little friends, who they really are, where they really come from, and maybe the fact that they can't put a leprechaun curse on him if he doesn't do as they say. It's time to set him free. 
and maybe they can all be free of their pursuers. At least until next week. The End Land of the Giants was the last of Irwin Allen's run of sci-fi shows at 20th Century Fox in the 1960s, and it was the only one of those productions to make it even briefly into the 1970s before Allen's TV fortunes dried up. But that just meant that Irwin Allen was free to produce big-screen epics like The Poseidon Adventure and The Towering Inferno, reclaiming his title as Hollywood's master of disaster in the process. On the small screen, Irwin Allen had scored two major successes with Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea on ABC and Lost in Space on CBS. The late 60s were a bit less kind to Allen's very budget-conscious brand of production, however. The Time Tunnel lasted only a single season on ABC, and Land of the Giants lasted two budget-busting seasons on the same network, setting a new industry record by spending as much as a quarter million dollars per episode for the elaborate special effects and giant props that were the show's trademarks. Nowadays, of course, a quarter million is probably spent on the opening titles of an hour of TV. If you want guest stars, man, we've got guest stars. Alan Hale Jr. used to say Gilligan Little Buddy every week as the skipper, but here he finally has a whole bunch of little buddies. As was often the case after the death of his famous father, who had also been an actor, Hale dropped the junior from his on-screen credit here. Gilligan's Island was a relatively recent gig for Hale, one which ran from 1964 through 1967, and he was now a frequent flyer on the guest-starring circuit, trying to take on as many non-skipper roles as he could. Green Acres, The Flying Nun, Wild Wild West, Here's Lucy, Ironside, O'Hara U.S. Treasury, even The Paul Lind Show. But the S.S. Minnow always beckoned him back. He couldn't escape the role of the skipper any more than Gilligan could get everyone off the island with a raft made of coconuts. The new adventures of Gilligan turned Alan Hale Jr. back into the skipper, at least as a voice for animation in the early 70s, and he'd be back behind the mic for Gilligan's Planet in the early 80s. And then there was the seemingly endless string of live-action reunion TV movies with the rest of the Gilligan's Island cast, including, yes, the one with the Harlem Globetrotters, which, to be honest, was probably a lot more fun than some of the other work waiting for Hale in the 1970s, including the delightfully terrible made-in-Wisconsin horror flick The Giant Spider Invasion, which deservedly wound up on Mystery Science Theater 3000. He also played the skipper in cameo appearances on other shows from Adam West-era Batman to ALF, to name just a couple. The skipper might have signed up for nothing more than a three-hour tour, but Alan Hale Jr., trooper that he was, was in it for the long haul. We lost him in 1990. The episode's other main guest star is Alan Bergman as Krenko. A busy character actor in the 1960s and 70s, Bergman appeared in the original Star Trek. He was one of the aliens running sinister experiments on Kirk, Spock, and McCoy in The Empath, and he would go on to appear in Mission Impossible, Search, The Six Million Dollar Man, and Wonder Woman, so we will undoubtedly be seeing him and talking about his work in other installments of Retrogram. Alan Bergman left us in 2017. Doing whatever is necessary to survive, even if it's not something they would normally do under non-microscopic circumstances, is not a new theme in Land of the Giants, but here we see our heroes resorting to something really kind of questionable. They 
didn't set out to create the whole leprechaun misunderstanding, but once it's established that it works in their favor, thanks to Fitzhugh, they ride that horse really hard, don't they? And it becomes a story about them uh, requisitioning more than just the necessities. I mean, parts to repair the spindrift, very good, very necessary. Giant vat of beer, totally not necessary, but we're not going to turn it down. O'Reilly is a giant walking stereotype. It's really kind of cringeworthy. Between the drinking too much and the thinking leprechauns are real. I mean, really, what in the Darby O'Gill flavored hell is this? Is there any Irish stereotype they forgot to cram into this singular character? That being said, late in the episode, when he's really questioning why he's doing the bidding of the little people, O'Reilly comes into his own. And then he asks the same little people whose motives he's questioning to tell him the difference between right and wrong, and it's kind of sad. Here is a guy who is really confused. Captain Burton's instincts at this point are right on the money. Fitzhugh has to tell O'Reilly the whole truth, and he has to let the guy go. Otherwise, the Spindrift crew are charlatans taking advantage of a man who clearly has turned them into something of a belief system. I don't remember this entire series with crystal clarity. Any installment of Land of the Giants I watch for Retrogram will be the first time I have seen any of these shows since I was, say, six or seven years old. But I think this may be the episode where the actions of the Spindrift gang are at their most questionable. Again, they didn't create the situation, but they seem to have no difficulty in exploiting it. It adds up to an interesting example of, uh, how would you put it, moral relativism? in prime time at the end of 1969? For whatever it's worth, even though Land of the Giants and Mission Impossible aired on the same night, they did not air at the same time. Land of the Giants was, like Lost in Space before it, regarded as a family show, complete with a giant beer vat, and it aired at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central on ABC. Mission Impossible, which almost always dealt with more mature themes by comparison, and a lot more gunplay, was on at 10 o'clock Eastern, 9 o'clock Central on CBS, right after the Glen Campbell Good Time Hour, and up against the second half of whatever that week's ABC Sunday Night Movie was. And now, as Retrogram is wont to do, we jump across the Atlantic for Doctor Who, Season 7, Episode 1, Spearhead from Space, Part 1, which aired Saturday, January 3rd, 1970, on BBC One. Welcome to UNIT, United Nations Intelligence Task Force. If anything that doesn't originate from Earth is headed toward Earth, it's their business. And that includes a strange, almost arrow-shaped formation of meteorites streaking toward the Earth's surface. One of them slams into the ground in a wooded area where a poacher is setting rabbit traps. It pulsates with a glowing light synchronized to an audible and obviously artificial signal being emitted by the object, which is some kind of polyhedron, again, obviously not naturally occurring. It's during this event that elsewhere in the woods a police telephone box appears out of thin air with a strange wheezing groaning sound. 
the door opens, and a tall man with an unruly mess of gray-white hair literally topples out of the box, wearing clothes that are obviously too small for him. He hits the ground, and he doesn't get up. Just another day in the woods. In central London, Cambridge astrophysicist Dr. Elizabeth Shaw is being driven to Unit HQ for a meeting with the leader of that organization, Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart. He's trying to recruit a new scientific advisor because the man he really would have preferred for the job, a short guy with a mop of brown hair who had a police box that could appear or disappear out of thin air, is nowhere to be found. Since UNIT was formed in the past couple of years, it's been dealing with hints of unfathomable alien threats to life on Earth that require more than just the military mindset. Liz is not interested. But the brigadier hooks her with the report of this morning's oddball meteor shower and the fact that it's not even the first meteor shower to happen in that same area. Now, what are the odds against that happening? Just as Liz is getting interested, phone call for the brigadier. He's left standing orders with his men to let him know if, oh, say, a police telephone box appears somewhere that it shouldn't. It just so happens that one has turned up in the woods where unit soldiers were looking for any of the meteorites or pieces thereof. And there was a man nearby who was initially mistaken for a dead man because his vital signs were so weak. He's now at the local hospital, befuddling the doctors there by having two hearts on his x-rays, having blood that doesn't match any known human blood type. Now, what are the odds against that happening? The brigadier orders his men to keep the police box under armed guard and to do the same for the man who is found lying next to it. He and Liz Shaw will be at the hospital ASAP. When they get there, they find that the press has been tipped off that there's something unusual about the hospital's newest patient, though most of the reporters think that perhaps the patient has been injured by one of the meteorites. Once the brigadier and Liz push past the press, it's time to meet the mystery man, the one whose doctors can't really figure out what's wrong with him. When the brigadier finally gets a look at this patient, he's never seen the man's face before. It's not who he was expecting. But the patient knows the brigadier by name, and he expects the brigadier to recognize him. He asks for a mirror so he can see what they've done to him. He seems startled by his own appearance, like he hasn't seen his own face before. And then he's out like a light again. The brigadier issues orders to have the patient move to Unit HQ as soon as he is fit to travel. But as soon as the brigadier leaves the hospital, the patient is up and about of his own accord. He's looking for his shoes. When they are given to him, the patient clutches them and rolls over in bed. And when no one's looking, he reaches into one of them and pulls out a key. So this is the doctor, his new face at least, and he's ready to get back to the TARDIS. But then two hospital orderlies with strangely smooth, shiny skin show up with other plans. They overpower him, gag him, and put him in a wheelchair, preparing to load him into an ambulance under the supervision of another man with odd skin, this one wearing a suit. He was hanging around in the background when the reporters mobbed the brigadier, and everyone just assumed he was a member of the press. But while his wheelchair is still on the loading ramp, the doctor springs to life and rolls away from his captors at really, really unsafe speeds for a gagged man in a wheelchair. The unit men still at the hospital open fire on the ambulance as the doctor rolls away as fast as he can, finally overturning the wheelchair and escaping on foot. He runs through the underbrush into the woods, trying to find the TARDIS, which is, of course, being heavily guarded, 
and of course the doctor still can't speak, so the unit guards standing watch at the TARDIS shoot him when he bursts out of the woods unannounced. Now what are the odds against that happening? To be continued. If you watch through the rest of Spearhead from Space, there's a lot that doesn't sit flush with the rest of John Pertwee's time as the Doctor. And yes, there's a reason for that, and yes, I am going to tell you what it is. All four parts of Spearhead from Space were still being produced by Derek Sherwin, who had been the showrunner at the end of Patrick Troughton's tenure in the TARDIS. Sherwin is also co-creator of Unit, so naturally he brought that concept forward in this story to make it a more or less permanent part of the Doctor Who format, at least for the rest of the early half of the 1970s. Unit had only appeared in one story prior to this one, and this was only the third appearance of Nicholas Courtney as the Brigadier. With space and future-based stories resulting in numerous Doctor Who stories going over budget in the late 1960s, Sherwin had the idea of stranding the Doctor on Earth, exiled by the Time Lords, after his trial in the final black-and-white episode of 1969. This would have been the case whether Patrick Troughton had stayed with the show or not, by the way, but as it happened, Troughton was ready to hang up his time-traveling shoes, and with John Pertwee's comedy track record, it was expected that the light-hearted tone of late 1960s Doctor Who would be carried into the 70s, so in a lot of ways, John Pertwee's first adventure as the Doctor almost feels like it belongs to Pat Troughton's era. That would all be changing drastically with the very next story, which saw a new showrunner taking over for the rest of Pertwee's era, Barry Letts. Barry Letts found that he had a versatile performer who was ready to do some drama, and Barry also wanted to start working some real messages about real-world ideas and issues into the show's scripts, because Doctor Who already had a large and disproportionately young and impressionable audience. Barry's tenure as the showrunner, as well as frequently writing and directing the show, saw Doctor Who addressing things like pollution, the rights of indigenous peoples, nonviolent protest, labor rights, and more all of which was shaping the politics of a generation of young minds, whose parents paid very little of it any heed because it was all happening with aliens of one kind or another. But that sea change is nowhere to be found in Spearhead from Space, which is a bit schizophrenic. The Doctor scenes could just as easily have featured Patrick Troughton, and no one would have blinked, whereas the unit and military scenes were obviously trying to be more serious and polished, and maybe just a bit James Bond. Well, okay, James Bond on a BBC budget. The reason Spearhead from Space looks a bit slicker than typical Doctor Who of this era is that it's shot entirely on film. This was really more of a bug than a feature, however. BBC studio employees were on strike at the time, so in order to keep production on schedule and not miss the January 1970 air date, producer Derek Sherwin opted to shoot the entire thing on location on film. Most Doctor Who from this era, and really most British TV of this era, would do studio shoots on video and location shoots on film, and would then edit the two together as if there weren't vast differences in grain and picture quality and how each situation had to be lit. This story never set foot in a studio, so even the most mundane settings, like offices, a location scout had to find a suitable place and get permission to film there. Now, because of this, and because the BBC retained the original film negatives, Spearhead from Space became the first, and for a long time the only, Doctor Who story to be released on Blu-ray, because the original film could be rescanned at high-definition resolution. 
In the past two or three years, as this podcast is being recorded and released, we are now getting Blu-ray releases of Doctor Who stories shot partially on film and partially on video, owing to more recent advances in upscaling the UK PAL video standard to HD, since it's easier to tease at least 720p HD out of PAL's 576 visible lines, something that would be a lot harder with American NTSC standard def video, which had fewer than 500 visible lines. This being the first appearance of John Pertwee in Doctor Who, let's talk about his career a bit. As early as the 1930s, he was already scoring uncredited background roles in the British film industry, though showbiz took a backseat during World War II. After the war, John gravitated back toward films, TV, and radio, appearing in Carry On Films, How to Undress in Public Without Undue Embarrassment, and A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Pertwee himself appeared as a brigadier in an episode of The Avengers in 1967, by the way, but if there was a rank he was much better known for, it was as Chief Petty Officer Pertwee in the BBC radio comedy series The Navy Lark, which spanned the 60s and 70s and made him a household name long before he set foot in the TARDIS. A lot of his characters and situations in The Navy Lark were inspired by his own wartime years in the Royal Navy. After Doctor Who, he hosted a murder mystery quiz show called Who Done It, before moving on to what he would often say was his favorite role as the scarecrow Warzel Gummidge in the children's series of the same name. He would say in later years that his biggest disappointment of his career was that Warzel Gummidge didn't catch on in the United States. John Pertwee died of a heart attack at the age of 76 while vacationing in America in 1996. He had a pretty good career for an actor who had once been kicked out of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. By the way, future Space 1999 co-star Prentice Hancock has a blink-and-you'll-miss-it role as reporter number two. Just thought I'd point that out. It's almost easy to gloss over, but in the opening scenes, we're talking the first scenes with actors speaking dialogue in a Doctor Who episode shot in color instead of black and white, the unit officer in charge is a woman. I don't want to try to attach any huge amount of significance to that, except that this is half a year after the final episode of Star Trek had told us that a woman couldn't be a starship captain, and that caused a huge amount of backtracking and retconning that would tie up entire episodes of Star Trek fan films into the 21st century. It really raises the question of which country had seen women make greater advances socially. It's kind of a running gag now, but at the time, the unit stories were envisioned as happening several years after their air dates. These scenes in the first episode of Doctor Who of the 1970s were intended to be taking place closer to 1980. So maybe it wasn't so much a comment on where things were, but more of a guess at where things were headed. Overall, Spearhead from Space, especially watching just part one in isolation, is obviously a transitional event for Doctor Who. We're transitioning from one Doctor to the next. This is the last gasp of the final 1960s production team and their way of doing things, and we're transitioning from black and white to color for the first time in the show's history. A lot of stuff is in flux here, so it's impressive that it still manages to feel like Doctor Who, while also wearing some very obvious media influences on its sleeve. The opening scene is kind of like a modernized version of the Quatermass experiment, and the unit scenes are angling for some more military realism than in the past, 
And holy cow, what a cliffhanger. I mean, they just shot the doctor. Underneath it all, really going to the scenes early in the episode where the brigadier is trying his hardest to sell Liz Shaw on a gig with Unit, there seems to be a concern about emerging advanced threats that even the brightest military minds need help just comprehending, let alone defeating. Surely, nothing like that will be going on just a few days into 2020. So there it is, what we, well, okay, maybe our parents or our relatives across the ocean were watching 50 years ago from right about now. So much has changed, and yet so much hasn't. Happy New Year. Happy New Decade. If we want things to change, maybe we should decide we're the ones to change them and not let anyone talk us out of it for some silly reason like, oh, but that's the way things have always been. New year, new you, new decade, that's a whole new world. Do what you can to make it a better one. Also, on a lighter note, consider this. The episode The Amnesiac doesn't actually feature an amnesiac, but Spearhead from Space does. Retrogram Podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. Free Music Archive is also home to lots of other great music. Additional music in this episode was by DZ, Andrew Howes, and Hermelin, also licensed under Creative Commons. Looking for a New Year's resolution? It's not too late. You could join the ranks of the logbook.com's Patreon supporters. Even if you can only pitch in a little bit, even that little bit helps keep the logbook.com and its podcasts and videocasts going. You can be like Kevin and Darwin and Javier and sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash the logbook. If ongoing pledges of support aren't your thing, pour us a coffee. That's ko-fi.com slash the logbook and make a one-time donation. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, mugs, shower curtains. Yes, shower curtains. Shower curtains with floaty robot buddies, I might add. And other goodies from our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com. And if you need to catch up on Star Trek Discovery or want to be ready for the new Picard series, which is mere weeks away, you can sign up for a free week of CBS All Access through our links. And if you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps the logbook and retrogram out a lot. Just visit us at thelogbook.com slash retrogram. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com.